Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're at this morning. We are in a series called um, Own the Vision, and uh, we've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks. This is week three of that, and we've said at North Park we are on mission to obey the Great Commission. So we say it this way, we exist to glorify God by helping people trust and follow Christ through worship, community, and mission. Now, last week, we saw the role of gospel-fueled worship in our personal and corporate life. And this week, we're going to talk about gospel-shaped community. You know, your best memories always include other people. Your wedding day, that great vacation you had, a fun Christmas with the family, a particular day at the lake or the beach. Some of the funniest and best memories we have happen many times even in random places, not around significant times, but around significant people, right? And so at the end of our days, if we're laying on our deathbed, we're not generally going to look fondly back on all those memories we made alone. Um, usually it'll be the relationships will be what we cherish. The memories with friends and family will be what we cherish. And the reason for that is we are made for community. It's just the way we're wired. God made us that way. It is not good that man should be alone. And so God made us to, to operate within relationship with others. We're designed, engineered, built to live in community. Now, you might be saying, well, I'm an introvert, and so that's different for me. Well, that just means you don't like people. Um, doesn't mean, just kidding, uh, doesn't mean that even introverts are made for community, right, and have something to offer community. So it doesn't matter whether you're energized by being around other people or whether you need to recuperate after you've been around other people. You still need other people. We are all made for community. One of the things that happens when we become Christians is we become a part of a new community particular community, a spiritual family called the church. And every believer in Christ is a part of the church the moment we believe we become family, right? Every believer, on top of that, is supposed to be a part of a particular church, a local church, a local family of believers. And it is the gospel of Jesus, the good news and the message of who he is and what he's done that unites us into a community and that shapes our attitudes and behaviors and the culture of that community. One of the great passages on gospel-shaped community is found in Hebrews chapter 10. So I'm going to read it to you. We're going to look at Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. It's on the screen for you this morning. Now, we do not know who wrote Hebrews with certainty. And so the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the book of Hebrews, the kind of the theme of that book, or one of them, is the fact that Jesus is better, or Jesus is superior. It tells us he's better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's the better sacrifice. He's the enactor of a new and better covenant. And you see that theme played out through the book. And the book helps us understand, in many ways, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law and how those sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing to a better sacrifice that came through Jesus, the person of Christ. And Hebrews chapter 10 the writer has been describing how Jesus is that ultimate and final sacrifice. He says in Hebrews 10.10, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 
It goes on to say in verse 12, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so when you get to verse 19 in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer is beginning to explain how believers need to live in light of that sacrificial death that Jesus died on the cross that takes our sin away. So in verses 19 through 21, he explains how we have confidence now to enter into the holy places and we can go right into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus. And since Jesus is our great high priest who makes that possible, we're giving three exhortations in that section, verses 19 through 25. He says, let us, or really verses 19 through 21, he says, let us draw near to God with a true and pure heart. Let us hold fast to our confession of hope and let us consider one another. And so there's kind of three responsibilities, you might say, that we have in light of what Jesus has done. And we're focusing on that third responsibility today, the idea of living life out in a community of faith in light of what Jesus has done. It is not just a community. It is a gospel-shaped community. It is one who, that has been formed by what Jesus has done and a people who are continually being formed by the good news of Jesus. And in verses 23 through 25, we can see some marks of gospel-shaped community. In light of what Christ has done, this is the way to live, right? And in verse 23, um, he, he kind of, we, we, we see there he begins to kind of show us something we hold in common. And then verses 24 and 25, he kind of describes the kind of community he's calling us to live out. Gospel-shaped community, we can say, is, is more than these things than we find in these three verses, but it's not less than. So let me give you three characteristics of true gospel-shaped community that we should be striving for here and that every church should be striving for. Number one, unfailing confidence in the gospel. He says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who's promised is faithful. You see those pronouns there, us, let us, our hope, right? Those plural pronouns, there's a shared confession. It's not just hold fast your confession, it's let us hold fast our confession, right? Our hope. Our confession of hope is the gospel. That's what he's pointing to there. It's, it's who Jesus is, who he says he was, what he did, the fact that he's coming again, all that he taught. It's, it's the message of Christ, right? That's our confession, that we believe Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he was going to do and is going to do what he says he's going to do and coming back. That's what he's talking about. That's our confession of hope. Our hope is in the gospel. Now, we believe all that Jesus said all that Jesus did and all that Jesus taught. And we believe he is who he says he is. God in the flesh, sinless God in the flesh, who came to die in our place and rise from the dead. That's our hope. And our hope is in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So as a community, we are a people who have come together with that sort of unfailing confidence in the, in the gospel. Unfailing. He says, hold this, hold it fast without wavering. Don't depart from it. Hold it together as a community as we await for his return. Now, hope in the New Testament is not a wish. When we use hope in our vernacular, we tend to mean it kind of like a wish. Well, I hope my car cranks. I hope I get this promotion. I hope this happens, right? And we, it means uncertainty. We don't really know, but we're crossing our fingers. In the New Testament, that is not ever what it means. Hope in the New Testament, when in, in the Christian sense, speaks of certain expectation. It's I'm expecting it, but I'm expecting it with, with certainty. I know deep in my heart it's true, and I'm expecting and waiting for something to happen here. So I hope is in the gospel. I have this expectation that Jesus is going to return. I have an expectation that I'm going to spend eternity with God. 
That's my hope. And it's not like a wish. It's a certain expectation. And that phrase there, he says, now hold that hope, hold that confession of hope fast. It means to continue in it, to don't give up on it, don't walk away. Unfailing confidence in the gospel. He says, hold on to that without wavering. See, there has to be something that makes a community a community or a family a family. You've you got to hold some things in common, even if it's in a family, even if it's just DNA, right? But there's got to be something that holds us in common. In your neighborhood community, you share a zip code and a, and a region within that zip code and a street name and things of that nature. My children share my DNA. You could do a DNA test and you'd know, well, those kids belong to Josh and Christy. Don't even look at them. But <laughs> we, we have a DNA test as a church, right? We have a DNA test as a church. It's our common, unfailing confidence in the gospel. That is the DNA of every believer. It's what unites us. We believe the gospel, and we've been forgiven of our sin, and God has placed his Holy Spirit, the seal of the Holy Spirit, on us. He's placed the Holy Spirit in us, and so we, we have this common shared values and common shared beliefs, common shared confidence in the gospel. We don't share all the same preferences. We don't share all the same tastes or abilities or backgrounds. But we share the same gospel, the same Lord, the same Savior, the same hope, the same faith. We share in Jesus. Jesus is what makes us family. Jesus is what makes us community. Today, we'll take the Lord's Supper together here at the end of our time. And when we do that, it's an opportunity for believers, right, for people in the family of God to reflect on what Christ has done for us in dying for our sins. It reminds us also of what has bound us together as family, right? We refer to it not just as the Lord's Supper, but as communion. As we come together in relationship and in our relationship with the Lord and we remember Christ and his sacrifice that has made us family and bought us and made us his. Now, we're all striving in this faith family, or should be, to persevere in our faith, holding fast, right? We're, we're striving to hold fast to the gospel, to persevere in the gospel, to continue to grow and to mature and to not fall away from the confession that we've given. But we're kept by God's grace, right? And one of the means of God's grace that he uses to help us hold fast and to help us per persevere is community. See, we, we need each other. We need community. Apart from community, we're neglecting one of the foundational means God has given to help us persevere in the faith. So we come together as a faith family, holding our confidence in the gospel. That's what unites us together as we persevere together. And so since we need one another, there's got to be some strategic reason that we come together. And that brings us to number two. Intentional encouragement of one another. All right? That's the second characteristic of gospel-shaped community. Intentional encouragement of one another. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Humanity is made for community, right? All people need other people. It's not good that man should be alone. But Christians are saved for church community. We, we need other believers, and they need us. And so becoming a believer doesn't make you need community less, it makes you need a particular kind of community more. And so we are made for community, but we are saved to be a part of a church community or a faith family. Verse 24, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another. That phrase there, let us 
consider. It means to think about carefully. Let us think about this carefully. Think about what? How to stir, how to help one another be more godly, fruitful Christians. At the, at the root here, the, the point is we are to be thinking about one another, how to help one another. Every believer is commanded to think about how we can help other Christians grow, mature, and be more fruitful in their walk. To better love God, to better do good in Jesus' name. Paul is calling us to intentional encouragement of others. This requires us to gather each Sunday with the church and instead of thinking, what can I get out of today? How can the church serve me today? How can I leave happiest and most fulfilled? It requires us to come to church thinking, what can I give today? What can I do today? How can I serve today so that others are encouraged? Because if everybody comes doing that, everybody leaves encouraged. But if everybody comes looking to be served instead of to serve, nobody's going to leave encouraged. Because a selfish church will not be an encouraging church. Being in gospel-shaped community means serving others. Service is woven into the very fabric of the faith community. By considering how to stir them to love and good deeds, you are considering how you can best serve them. In 1 Peter, verse 10, the Apostle Peter writes, as each has received a gift, right? Talking about spiritual gifts. Every believer, if you're here this morning and you have faith in Jesus, you've been given a, a particular gift to serve the church with. He says, each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You are stewarding the grace of God and how you use the gifts God has given you or gift God has given you to serve the church. He we serve out in the world, but that's not what he's talking about there. He's talking about serving other believers in the context of the faith community. So how can you do that about, about being a part of a local church? You can't. There are certain commands. I've said this before. There are certain commands in the New Testament that you cannot obey apart from involvement in a local church. Every believer has a gift given by God for them to serve others in the church with. Serving gifts, speaking gifts, variety of gifts, same spirit, different gifts, all for the purpose of building up and edifying the church of the Lord Jesus. We can all serve in some way. And at the very least, we serve by thinking, not of ourselves, but how to, of how to encourage others in some way. It's not about special positions in the church. Being on this or being on that or having a, this title or that title. God calls us all to serve. There's a limited number of positions. Hey, we're in the season where we're recruiting people to do things like serve on committees and serve on teams. That's important. But there's actually a limited number of those positions. So if all it means to serve in the church is to have a title or have a position on a committee, we're in trouble because everybody can't serve. So there's more than that. It's, it involves that, but there's more than that. Every single person in this room that names Jesus as Lord and Savior can serve the church in some way. But we have to engage. We have to engage. We have to choose to engage others to serve others. But when we're shaped by the gospel, the gospel that we hold to so dearly, we will be prone to consider one another. It forces us to. The gospel makes us into that kind of people. And then think, how can I serve? How can I bless? How can I encourage others? See, in the gospel we see that when we were deserving of nothing but judgment and wrath, Jesus considered us. The Father considered us. He thought about us. And he sent Jesus, and Jesus willingly came to earth with intentionality, with the purpose of not to be served, as Jesus said, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many, to save us. This was God's intentional, purposeful plan to bless us and to 
bring us into it, call us, but make us a part of his people. The gospel then begins to make us into people like Jesus as it changes us from the inside out. And so we too serve others with intentionality. Notice that phrase that he uses to stir up. In the ESV it says we are to consider how to stir up others. Some translations say to provoke or to spur one another. Well, it's a very strong word in the Greek, but it's neutral. In other words, it doesn't have to be a positive stirring. It can be a negative stirring. So you have to use context to determine what he means when he says that word there in the Greek that is translated stir up. It can mean to stir up in a bad way or a good way. It can literally mean a sharp disagreement. In fact, another time that it's used in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15 verse 39, that same word is used to describe the sharp disagreement that took place between Paul and Barnabas as they were preparing for a missionary journey and they were having a disagreement over whether this guy named John Mark should go with them or not. He had departed from them, deserted them at some point on one of their journeys and Paul's going, I don't think we should take a guy like that on this journey. He's already left us once. Not, let's not let him leave us again. Barnabas, who was the natural encourager, was kind of like, I'll give him another chance. And they so disagreed over it. Paul was like, this is just foolish that they, they decided, well, you go do your missionary journey over here. I'll go do mine over here. And they went their separate ways. It was a sharp disagreement. They stirred one another to depart <laughs> and separate. See, when you get people together, you're going to have a spurring, a provoking, and a stirring. That's just, that's just going to happen. That's human nature. People can be stirred to fight or stirred to love and good deeds. But people will always stir people. People will always provoke people. People will always spur one another's own. We affect the type of community we have. We affect each other. We either make others better or we make, and we make the church stronger or we make our group more fruitful or we stir people to bicker and to fight and to complain and to gossip. You and I can make this church stronger or we can make the church weaker because we are the community. It's not some abstract thing out there, right, that we kind of just say we're a part of. We're it. So when we talk about community, we're talking about the people in this room and those that are not with us today that call North Park their home. They're church. So we affect it. We are the church. There's an old adage. If you're busy rowing the boat, you don't have time to rock it. It's not always true. But there is some truth to that. We, we're all going to row or we're going to rock, right? There's, so it's human nature. We're going to stir one another. We have to choose. Are we going to consciously and intentionally be people that provoke one another to love and good deeds? Or are we just going to provoke? We need each other. We need each other to stir one another to love and good deeds. That means we have to consider when we come together and throughout the week as we're in contact, how can I best bless this person and encourage this person? What, what do they need from me? What do I have to offer them today that will encourage them in their walk with God? See, this should be a place, a community that helps you be a better or stronger Christian. For that to happen, you have to give of yourself. You can't just come looking to take. You have to look coming to give. If we all focus on serving one another, encouraging one another, then we all get encouraged. And if we all focus on what we can get, then none of us benefit. As I said earlier, if we're selfish, we can't be encouraging. Now, you and I are like ingredients in a recipe, right, for a church. We are the ingredients that make up this church. And when we all choose to encourage and to stir with the right intent, to provoke and spur one another on with the right intent, to love and to good deeds, to encourage in that way, works for the building up the edification of the church. But when we don't do that, 
or we come in seeking to stir in another way or to provoke in another way and our motives are differently and it's somehow to serve us instead of to serve others, it's a different recipe altogether. It's just like, man, you take a nice pot of stew or chili and set it on the stove and you start throwing the ingredients in, right? Every ingredient matters. And if you get things wrong, it's not going to taste right in the end. The final product's going to be determined by what goes in the pot and how much of what goes in the pot. And you and I are ingredients that are making up the chili that is North Park, right? And what we become and who we are is determined by what we put in. And we either choose to serve others or choose to serve self. So what does an environment of intentional encouragement look like? Well, the New Testament has much to say about the environment in a local church. If I read them all, we'd be here for the rest of the service doing that, so I'm not going to do that. But let me give you just six quick ones. It should be an environment of grace. Ephesians 4.32, Paul tells us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. As a people who have received grace, the gospel transforms us into a people that want to extend grace. So we forgive others. We're tenderhearted towards one another. We're compassionate to one another. We're merciful and kind to one another. If we're not, we're, we're not creating that environment of grace and we're not creating an environment where people will be encouraged and built up. It should be an environment of humility. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. We, if we all came in with that attitude, right, that the idea that others are more significant than me, and so I'm looking at how I can bless and serve others, man, how many problems would that cause in a church? I don't know that you would have another church split in the United States of America if people came with that attitude in Philippians 2. It should also be in an environment of correction. Loving correction, but it is an environment of correction. How do we know that? Well, because this is a place where the word goes forth. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. One of the very reasons God gave us his word is to reprove us and to correct us when we're wrong. And so this side of heaven, we're all going to need, pastor included, reproof and correction from time to time. And so that's, sometimes that's the way we encourage one another is to tell each other we're wrong. But it's always in the context of the scriptures. Not you're wrong because I think you're wrong. You're, this is wrong or this attitude is wrong or this behavior is wrong or this action is wrong. Because let me show you what God's word says. Correction. But it's also an environment of restoration. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So not just any restoration, gentle restoration. Keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted. So the idea of the struggling believer that's wandered off, that's no longer walking with the Lord or has allowed sin to entangle them in some way, we are to in love and carefully and strategically think how do we gently restore this person to a walk with God. should also be in an environment of empathy. Romans 12, 15 says we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That affects how we, how we feel. When one member of the body hurts, the entire body hurts, right? When I stump my toe, my entire body knows it and reacts. It, it, we're connected, right? And, so, and when we celebrate, we celebrate, right? When one member has something great happening, everybody should celebrate. When one member is hurting, everybody should mourn. We weep together. We rejoice together. It should be a place of empathy and a place of generosity, an environment of generosity. Hebrews 13, 16. 
The writer says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's a generous place that looks to bless and share with others. See, when you have this kind of environment, this kind of people, and there's more that we could say, it will be a place of encouragement, of stirring and spurring to love and good deeds. A place where you're built up and confronted in love when needed, restored if necessary, helped when you're hurting, listened to when you're hurting, and a place of true exhortation and encouragement. A gospel-shaped community should be characterized by unfailing confidence in the gospel and intentional encouragement towards one another. And thirdly, an increasing commitment to one another. Intentional encouragement to one another and an increasing commitment to one another. See, we live in a day where people are less and less likely to gather with the church. Here's the thing, though. You can't give or get encouragement if you don't gather. You, you can't be an ingredient in the encouraging church, right, if you're not here regularly. The writer of Hebrews warns against falling away from church involvement. He says, not neglecting, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I was told once that there was a time uh, that you had to be at church at least three plus times a month to be considered a quote-unquote regular attender, statistically speaking. So you'd read statistics and it would say, this percentage of people attend church regularly in America or in Florida or whatever. And it had to be at least three times before they would consider you regular. And I was told, you know, um, I can't cite a source on this other than somebody told me this, that they've actually lowered that. And generally now on, on um, statistics, it's, it's two times a month. Because if you come at least twice a month, you're here way more than most people. It's kind of the idea. So that's what they, they, they we've redefined regular attender. Why? Because church attendance is so poor. It's so poor. There's various reasons for that. Even worse, there are many people who claim to be Christian who see no need whatsoever for church involvement or church attendance. Listen, being in church doesn't make you a Christian. Just like the old saying, being in a garage doesn't make you in a car. But garages were built for cars. And the church is made for people, Christians. And so for Christians, we should be connected to and involved in the local church somewhere, a Bible-believing, Jesus-exalting church. Listen, my point is not to make us feel bad this morning if we hadn't been here in a while or we're inconsistent with our intentions and they, they guilt you. That's not the point at all. My point is you need community, and the community needs you. And we can't build that encouraging environment if we're not intentionally and increasingly committed to one another. You and I do not know better than God what we need to live the Christian life. And we have to accept that. And God teaches us that we need one another to do it. We need the gathering of believers. And you can't have community if you don't gather. Notice the encouragement happens when we meet. Right? Not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. See, we can't stir others. We can't encourage others. We can't serve others. Nor can we receive these things if we do not meet and gather. Encouragement is done when we're together, not neglecting, but encouraging, right? We've got to be coming together. Now, there had apparently been some at this time who had drifted away from the church gap, just like there is in any church in any day. That people forsaking the assembly, people choosing to do other things rather than attend the assembled gathering of the church is not a new thing. It's not a millennial problem. 
It's not a Generation Z problem. It's not a 2018 Western Hemisphere problem. It has been a problem since the writer of Hebrews wrote this. There were people who were already starting to wander away from the gathering for one reason or another. In our culture today, sometimes it's schedule, right? Things conflict with the schedule. Sometimes it's priorities. Other things are just simply more important. Sometimes it's distractions. You know the, this is important and should be of utmost importance, but you're distracted by less important things, and you feel obligated to them because you've made commitments that you never should have made, right? Those, all these are things that happen that ultimately pull us away. And from my experience, as someone who's been in ministry in the local church now for a decade or so, I can tell you when you get out of the habit to come, it is very difficult to get back in the habit to come. It becomes a discipline issue. So the best safeguard against it is don't get out of the habit. You need, listen, I've never met someone who does not consistently participate in the gathering of believers who has a great walk with God. Usually the conversation of, hey, I know we haven't been there in a really long time, can be followed by, by the way, can you pray for me about this? This struggle, this Not that that stuff don't happen when you, listen, you're going to have the battles when you're gathered. You can be here every time the doors are open, and we're still going to have the battle sin, and we're still going to fall into temptation, and we're still going to struggle. But when you're on an island, and there's no accountability, and after a while you're gone so long people no longer say we miss you, it's a lonely place to be. It's a difficult place to be, and you weren't made to live that way, and you weren't made to live the Christian life that way. The Christian life doesn't work when we live it that way. We're made for community. Notice he says we're to meet all the more Right? He says, or encourage one another, rather, all the more as we see the day approaching. The day refers to the return of Christ. My translation, it's a capital D, because that's what he's pointing to. He's talking about the day Jesus returns. He's talking about that time we're looking forward to, right? The second coming of Christ. And we are, as they were, living in the last days. That's the next thing on the prophetic calendar. We are a community who has trusted Jesus and who is looking for him to come back for us. And as time goes by, every day, we're closer to that day. So therefore, we should be even more committed to encouraging one another. We should be more committed to the local church and to encouraging one another in the local church than they were in Acts chapter 2 when you read about how radically committed and generous they were towards one another. You say, why? Because he says, all the more as you see the day approaching. And we're closer to the day than they were. So the commitment level should be higher. This shows us there's just no room for coasting in the Christian life. No room for retreating from the community. All the more is a call to increasing commitment. The sense in the Greek is greater degree, greater extent. See, what happens when you coast? You slow down. And if you coast long enough, you stop. And as time marches on, as Jesus' return gets closer every day, as you progress spiritually, you should not become less but more committed to the community of faith, more committed to the gathering of believers, more committed to encouraging others, more committed to using your gifts in a way that bless and serve and encourage other people of faith. See, growing slack in your commitment to meeting with and encouraging believers is to your own spiritual detriment and to the spiritual detriment of others. If you're meeting to encourage, or excuse me, if you're not meeting to encourage, then you aren't being encouraged by other believers. It's important, and nor are you able to contribute to the encouragement of other, other believers. They miss you, you miss them. John Phillips, the well-known commentator, compared it to a coal that falls out of the fire, right, and goes off 
rolls off by itself and becomes cold. It made me, I got this image in my mind of when I like to grill with charcoal. And so when you grill with charcoal, as you know, many of you, you have to what? You pile it up in this big, tall pile, this little mountain of charcoal, and then you get your whatever you're using to light it on there, and you leave that fire burning with that pile of charcoal for at least 15 or 20 minutes usually because it, it, if you spread it out too quick, what happens? You don't get a hot enough fire. Coals end up going out. You don't have an evenly heated grill. It's just all just a mess. So you have to leave it there for a while. So everything gets good and hot. The charcoal begins to turn gray. And then you go and you scatter it out and every coal is hot. And you scatter it out and you cover up this, the, the entire grilling surface here. And when we come together as believers, when we gather to encourage one another, that's where the heat is coming from, right? We're gathered to stir one another, to love and to good deeds, and then we scatter for mission. But see, if we didn't gather in the first place, we're cold, cold, right? And it's, 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 it's a detriment to the mission that we're trying to accomplish in advancing the gospel in our communities and in our city when we, when we don't gather together. We are made for that gathering. We gather to be stirred, to be encouraged, to gain heat, and then we scatter throughout the week to practice love and good deeds as we represent Christ. Let me ask you, are you growing in and increasing in commitment to the local church community? What kind of season of life are you in? There are seasons of life that naturally pull us away from other believers we have to battle. We are closer to the return of Jesus today than we were when this text was written. And Jesus might tarry another 2,000 years. I don't know. But how much more should we be looking to encourage one another in the faith if they were then? Because Jesus has died for our sins once and for all, as Hebrews 10 says. We have responsibility towards one another. He is, his death has made us one in Christ. We are a community. The gospel makes us family. It shapes us into the people of God. Then the gospel continues to shape us and mold us into the kind of people we want us to be that seeks to serve others, to bless others, to encourage others as long as we're continually applying the gospel to our heart and life and living in light of what Christ has done. And as we hold to our unfailing confidence in that gospel, as we intentionally encourage one another, as we show increasing commitment to one another, God shapes us and molds us. Hebrews 10, 23-25 has that backdrop of Hebrews 10, 1-22. The work of Christ has changed us and it's given us new responsibilities. And one of the new responsibilities we have is to one another because we've been bought and placed into a family, adopted into a family. Let me ask you, has the gospel begun to shape your life? Christian community is something you must be born into and adopted into. The Bible uses both illustrations for us. We have to be born again, right? Born of the Spirit. Made new on the inside. And at the same time, we have to be adopted in. We are outside the family, and God brings us in. And this happens when we place our faith and trust in Christ who died in our place and rose again. Has that happened to you? Are you a part of the family of God? When you trust and follow Jesus, you get more than forgiven. You get a whole new family. Are you in the family of God? If not, then today you can take that step. I know a lot of what we said today was aimed at believers, but I'll, if you're here today and you're just kind of searching, you're just kind of curious, and you've never made that commitment, you've never stepped out in faith and trusted Christ, I want, 
That's what happens when you become a believer. Yes, your eternities change and you get a relationship with God, but Jesus also radically changes your relationship with others as he brings you into the community of faith that is by no means perfect. We have our struggles and our failures because none of us are perfect. But we're his. And he's molding us and he's making us and he is perfecting us. And believers, how might you need to be more intentional with your encouragement of others? Would you take some time this morning and think over that? How might you need to increase your commitment to encouraging other believers? Do you need simply to be here more or to be more connected within the body of faith? Join a small group. What is it that you, what's the next step for you to become more connected? That's one of the reasons we do um, groups and we don't just have this gathering because in here we don't really get to talk. We don't really get to hang out. So we can't really purposely and strategically encourage one another as well in this gathering as we can when we break off in small groups and we discuss things and we talk about things and we share prayer requests and we do things that, like, like that. You're not getting as much encouragement as you could or giving as much as you could if you were in one of those gatherings. If you're not in one of those, every Sunday morning at 9.30, we meet for that time. There may be a, an area you need to start serving. Just ask yourself some questions. How can I better be a part of gospel-shaped community at Newport? And let's strive together to be a church where every believer is, yes, engaged in gospel-fueled worship and, yes, encouraged through gospel-shaped community. And as we'll talk about next week, leaves this place and participates in gospel-advancing mission. Let's pray.